Well, welcome to Life Church today. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It's great to see you. And uh, I echo what Steve said about uh, the baptisms. Man, that's just that's just awesome to be able to be a part and to see life change and and to be a part of that. And and that's the thing. Um, if you're new to Life Church or maybe this is your very first time, one of the things I love about this church, and I'm the pastor, but this isn't about me. This has nothing to do with me, what I'm about to say. It's, it's the fact that there are so many people. There were like 524 people that came to faith in Christ last year and, and, and are baptized, and that says happening. And so, and again, just to see that happening in the church that we're a part of, that we're worshiping God in that faith community is just just, just amazing. So uh, it's great to see you today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. If you need to go to the table of contents, that's fine. It's kind of buried in the Old Testament a little bit. But the book of Daniel, chapter 1. And we're starting a brand new series called The Daniel Dilemma. And if you resonate with what we're talking about, I'm going to encourage you to buy a book called The Daniel Dilemma. I didn't write it. Uh, Chris Hodges, who's the pastor of Church in the Highlands in Alabama, uh, wrote the book, and it's at the Resource Center. And so we're just simply, it's the same price you get it at Amazon. So it's just, we're just simply making that available to you as a resource. And I want you to know that the, as you hear the, the sermon series over the next several weeks, um, that's kind of a lot of the, the uh, how would you say, the inspiration for this series has come from. Uh, just, just how do we live out uh, our, our beliefs in a world that really doesn't value our beliefs. Um, how, how do we live for God in an ungodly world? How do we raise our kids to live for God in a world that's, that's just doesn't resonate with what we believe many times? It's kind of countercultural. Uh, how, how do we live this out? How do we, how do we do this without being condemning? Because here's my concern as a pastor. My concern as a pastor is not that you don't feel the cultural pressures. It's that you fold like a cheap suit. That's what we do. We, we don't know how do I live out what I believe and what I think the Bible says and what the Bible does say. How do I live that out in a way that, that is true to who I am, but it's not obnoxious. Uh, it's not necessarily offensive, um, but it's respecting of other people. How, how do I balance that? How do I live that? So that's really what we're going to be talking about these next several weeks is how do we live our lives for Jesus not just on Sunday morning or Saturday night in a weekend service, but how do we live it out Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday? How do we live it out at school? How do we live it out in our homes? How do we live it out in our neighborhoods? How do we live it out in life, in the office, and what we're doing? And so today we're beginning with kind of the beginning part of this, this uh, story, uh, this narrative of the life of Daniel. So Daniel is... Um, is, is inter- it's an interesting read because the first six chapters of this book all are based about this narrative, a historical narrative that basically talks about the captivity of Jerusalem, of the Israelites, under Babylon. And so they're going to be exiled from Jerusalem and they're going to be moved to Babylon under Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And uh, Daniel, about this age and this time, is he's probably upper teens. Uh, somewhere between, we, we don't know exactly, but somewhere between probably around 16, 17 years of age. Very bright young man, very much poised to do some great things. Probably would have been prime minister of Israel had they been a free nation. Uh, and he will live his entire life not as a free man. But yet he lives for God. 
And so these first, these first six chapters really unpack that, and we're going to kind of go through that. The, the last uh, half of the book is, is really more of Daniel as a prophet. He's seeing the end times. And again, trying to understand all of that's a whole other conversation for another day. But in this particular point today, as we're talking about today in Daniel chapter 1, these first 14 verses, we see that Israel now is being brought under captivity of Nebuchadnezzar, and things are shifting. And I think you're going to find that the issues and the situations and the circumstances that Daniel finds himself in are very much parallel to the world in which we live. So I just want to jump right into this passage, right into this text, and we're going to kind of walk this along. So if you have, if you, if you have the ability to take notes, I'd encourage you to do that. If you've got your Bible, Daniel chapter 1, if you don't, it's going to be on the screen. Verse 1, during the third year of Jehoiakim, who was king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and surrounded it with his army. And the Lord allowed, it's a whole other conversation, but I want you to understand that sometimes God allows for things to happen that we don't completely understand. The Lord allowed Nebuchadnezzar to capture Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar also took some of the things from the temple of God, which he carried to Babylon, and he put it in the temple of his gods, plural. You've got to understand that Israel was a monotheistic um, religion and, and, and nation. They believed in one God. Babylon believed in many gods. So they were just adding to their gods. Verse 3, then Nebuchadnezzar ordered Ash, Ashpenaz, the chief officer, to bring some of the men of Judah to his palace. He wanted them to be from important families, including the family of the king of Judah. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted not only the Israelite men who had nothing wrong with them, but they were handsome, well-educated, capable of learning. I know you're thinking of me at this point in time, right? Uh, understanding. And they were able to serve in his palace. So Ashpenaz was, was to teach them the language and the writing of the Babylonians. Then the king gave the young men a certain amount of food and wine every day, just like the food that he ate. And the young men were to be trained for three years, and then they would become servants of the king of Babylon. Verse 6. And among those young men were Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the people of Judah. Verse 7. And Ashpenaz, the chief officer, gave them Babylonian names. Daniel's new name was Belshazzar. Hananiah's was Shadrach. Mishael's was Meshach. And Azariah was Abednego. Now, I want to just kind of stop here just for a second. Because there's a lot of stuff here. I could really literally spend an hour or more, I won't, but just kind of unpacking some of these things. What's happening is, is Israel is under the captivity of this pagan nation, pagan being sinner, not believing in Jehovah God, not believing the God of, 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 of the Israelites. Um, and so they're being brought into captivity. And the process of being in captivity they understand that a lot of these, they're all going to become slaves to, to Babylon, which was the most powerful nation on the face of the planet at that point in time. They were the number one leading world power. Babylon would be modern-day Iraq. That's where it's at. And so what was happening is, is they said, look, and, and let's, 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 let's go, though, and let's find what are the, the men, the young men that come from educated, affluent, powerful influential families. Again, there was a hierarchy. And let's don't just put them and do menial tasks. Let's bring them into the palace. Let's educate them. Let's develop them. And then they're going to help us rule. 
And this is what, what would have been the way the Babylonians, if you, Western Civilization 101 at University of Wisconsin, will teach that this is how they would capture their people. They would capture and bring into captivity, but then they would take the elect or the elite, and they would bring those people into the palace, and they would utilize their gifts, their strengths, their talents, their abilities in order to basically continue to move Babylon forward to be the world power that it was. So, so what's happening, though, is when they bring them in, they immediately began to serve them food from the king's table. Now, the problem with this is that it wasn't a kosher diet. So it was completely against the Levitical law that we see written in the book of Leviticus. It, it was everything that they couldn't do. And the other problem with, with it was is that all this food had been offered to idols. Therefore, they couldn't take, partake of this. So they're in a dilemma right at the very beginning. What they believe and what they're connected to with the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the law, uh, you know, what, they, what, what they're anchored to is in direct violation of everything that they're going to feed them. There's a problem right off from the very beginning. But then when they bring them in and they select them, they, they give us these, these, these four uh, individuals and, and these young men, and they immediately change their names. There's a cultural shift that's happening here. Because the indoctrination of a new culture begins because culture always has an agenda. There's always an agenda. I'm not just saying that the world has an agenda. I'm saying that culture and the changes in culture. And, and again, I'm, I'm a big believer in being well-read, well-versed. I'm not one of these kind of people that's have a holy huddle. and just. But I'm telling you that this is what you see happening here. And it's important that we as Christ followers, as even the culture is unfolding in the world in which we live in, almost minute by minute with social media and with the power of, of the voice that anybody can have, that we know God's words. See, because they changed their names. This is really important because a name is a sign of ownership. Did your dad ever tell you, hey, uh, you know, you're, you're, you, you bear my name, so, so you better make sure that you stand up straight and that, that you walk right and, and don't embarrass the family name. It, it, it's what you believe about yourself. It's, it's, it's what culture says about you. If culture gives you a name, you know, maybe you were in junior high or elementary school and you got a nickname that you liked. Well, that was a, a sign of, of, of affirmation. But maybe you were one of those people that got a nickname that you didn't like and it was that you were kind of bullied. Well, well it, it's the world trying to put a tag or a label onto you and you're trying to figure all of that out. It, it, it says what the culture says about you. It's, 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 but then God also has, right? I mean, he speaks about you. And so what do you believe and to which name do you respond? Because your name, in essence, is your identity. And so I want you to first of all see that culture will change your identity. This is true in Daniel. This is true in the 21st century. That culture will always strive to change your identity. Let me unpack this for you. Daniel means, his name means, God is my judge. Under captivity with the Babylonians, his name was called Belshazzar, which means lady, protect the king. Immediately, there's a gender confusion. That's intentional and cultural change. That's what's going on in the world in which we live. See how all of a sudden this got really real? Like this stuff's getting real? Because what's happening is in every pagan culture historically, there is a gender confusion that goes on. And the idea is to destroy and to confuse relationship. To destroy and confuse relationship. Well, why would they do that? Because when you decentralize that, when you tear that apart, when you flatten that, when you destroy that, when you confuse that, then culture is the only thing that can speak into that. And the Babylonians knew this is what we're going to do. We're going to indoctrinate you and change you to our way of thinking. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. 
But his new name, Shadrach, means I am fearful of God. The exact opposite. Again, the attempt is to confuse and to destroy spirituality. That's what culture wants to do. Because there's a spirit. If, if you believe what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers of darkness and everything that exalts itself for the name of the power and the glory of God. There, there is God and there is Satan. There is the God of this world who is Satan, and there is a, there, there's an agenda, there's a, there's a, and then there's what God says. And these two things are in conflict, and you sense it when you go to school, you sense it when you go to your office place, you sense it if you're reading any kind of a thread on social media, the tension is palpable. Why? Because culture has an agenda. And again, one of these agendas is to destroy spirituality in the life of an individual. Mishael means who is what God is. It speaks of confidence and power. But Meshach means I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. Again, what's culture trying to do, what's Babylon trying to do in this instance, is to confuse and to destroy self-worth and value. Because quite frankly, if you don't value yourself, nobody else will. Therefore, what does it, what does it matter who created you? What does it matter where you came from? What's the essence of anything? What's the value of your life or anybody else's life? And Azariah means Yahweh is my help. Yahweh, God, is my help. But Abednego means the servant of Nebo. God is no longer in the equation. And he's no longer part of your future. It's an attempt to destroy and to confuse future. See, when culture shifts, you have to know who you are. It's the first thing that they're trying to, that culture is trying to do is to change your identity, to try to morph and to change this. We, we, let, let, me, let me keep walking on. Verse 8, Daniel decided not to eat of the king's food, and I told you why, or of his drink, of his wine, because it would, it would make him unclean. He, he, he wouldn't be forming to the law. So he asked Ashpenaz for permission to not make himself unclean in this way. I want, you to, I want you to notice, he doesn't just assume this. He doesn't just get brazen. He doesn't just try to buck up against the system. He goes to the person that's in authority over him, and he, he basically has a conversation that we're going to unpack in just a minute. I, I want to know, is there an alternate way that I can do this? Because of my belief system, I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble, but I can't eat this food. Not that it's not great, not that it's not that, but it, it's, it's not even that my taste buds. It's simply that I can't do this. And so is there another way that we can work this? I think this is important because I think in the world in which we live in, and when you're trying, again, when you're this, what we call the Daniel dilemma, when you're trying to unpack this, sometimes it's easy just to kind of go holy on people or kind of go uber spiritual on people. It's not what I'm talking about. It's not what Daniel's talking about. It's about working through authority, and we're going to kind of unpack this. But I want you to understand this. The second thing that happens is that culture will compromise your standards. He is immediately confronted day one with a compromise to what he believes. It, he, it, culture will compromise your standard. This is the dilemma. You want to follow God, but culture pressures you. You want to live for God, but everybody in the office is doing this. Everybody's going here. Everything at school is this way. This is what's happening. 
And we as Christ followers are called to live according to a standard, which is God's word. And we have to remember God's standard is written for, for us. And I think it's important to, 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 to kind of package and to kind of, kind of frame is to remember that God's word is not written to be a kind of a cosmic killjoy. God's word is written so that it's for your benefit. It's for your blessing. It's for you to have, have the, the life that, that you're desiring, that he gives you the desires of your heart. Why? Because the creator placed in you the creation, the desires to, put, to, 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 to be there. And so God's trying to help you. He's trying to keep you from getting off into the, the ditch that's on the left and the ditch that's on the right and kind of stay on the high ground in the, in the middle. But culture will try to push and go, no, 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 no. It's just trying to keep you from having fun and keep you from, from experiencing life. You need to be more open-minded. You need to be quick, let, let, less, less narrow-minded. And there is this tension. There's a tension between trying to serve God and, 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 and try to live in the world. There's a tension to go do your job and to deal with your clients. There's a tension to try to deal with other students that they completely think that you're a moron because of what you believe. There's a tension when you step onto that university campus and you're trying to live for God and the professor basically just makes complete fun of you because you have some crutch of a religion and a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a good statement. When culture shifts... We must affirm our convictions. When a culture shifts, we must confirm, or excuse me, affirm our convictions. This is what Daniel's doing here. When culture begins to move away from, from the norm, when culture begins to change, when it begins to shift, it's trying to pull us with it. It could be the way that we walk, the way that we talk, what we do, what we watch, what we wear, what, where we go, what we accept as okay and permissible. It begins to shift. It begins to move. It begins to change. And at that point in time, we have to evaluate, what does God's word say? I know what the world's saying, but what does his word say? I've got to affirm, this is what I believe. I've got to make sure that I put a stake down. This is what I believe. I've got to make sure for my kids that they understand not just what we believe, but why we believe it. I think this is important because I think sometimes we can tell people, don't watch this movie, don't go to this place, don't talk to that person. But we don't tell them why. I was raised in church where it was all the do's and the don'ts, and nobody explained why you didn't watch that and why you didn't listen to that and why you didn't go there and why and why and why. And, and so what happens is, is it raises up a whole feeling of legalism that somebody somewhere is making a decision on what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's sinful, what's not sinful, instead of just going back to God's word and understanding the principles to go, look, if you're in a situation where this is happening, you need to exit if you're in a place where this is going on, here's how you need to handle this. Why? Because this violates the very nature and essence of who God is. Because there's an entire erosion of absolute truth in the world in which we live in. 20 plus years ago, 25 years ago, when Tammy and I started youth pastoring, that was the big thing, that if we don't change the, the, the conversation in our nation, uh, it, we'll, we'll lose absolute truth because, because morality and, and, and biblical values are being so threatened. And so today, we have moved so far away as, from a society just in the last 20 years from what we believed 20 years ago. There were things that we believed 20 years ago. Everybody, even the people that showed, only showed up at church on Easter Sunday or Christmas Eve, the, the Christers, right? Only those people that showed up then, they even believed that. That today there are people who are, who are regularly attending church that go, I don't really know if I believe that anymore. 
Because somewhere along the way, we didn't affirm the conviction that this is what I believe. Come hell or high water, this is what I believe. I didn't write the book, but this is what I believe. Let's read on in verse number 9. And God made Ashpenaz, the chief officer, want to be kind and merciful to Daniel. But Ashpenaz said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my master, the king. He ordered me to give you this food and drink. And if you begin to look worse than the other young men of your age, the king will see this. Then he will cut off my head because of you. I want you to notice that in verse 9, God gives Daniel favor. Favor ain't fair, but God gives you favor. When you begin to trust God's word, you walk out God's word, you live out God's word, he's not going to leave you out there. He's going to make, the Bible says, there's always a way of escape. When the enemy comes like, in like a flood, he'll raise up a standard against them. That no weapon formed against you shall prosper. That God will see you through, and God gives Daniel favor. Now, let's read on in verse number 11. And Ashpenaz had ordered a guard to watch Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice that Daniel doesn't write their names from the pagan Babylonian names, but he continues to refer to them in their given Jewish Israel names. Daniel said to the guard, please give us this test for 10 days. Don't give us anything but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And after 10 days, compare how we look with the other young men who eat the king's food and see for yourself and then decide how you want to treat us, your servants. So the guard agreed to test them for the next 10 days. And if you read on, you'll find out that they outperformed everybody else in the room. Now, I want to say this because I think this is interesting, and we're, and we're going to see this as we walk through this in the next several weeks, is that he uses this, this phrase, test us. This is going to be the first of many tests in Daniel's life. Because here's what's going to happen. Culture will always create a confrontation. When you're a Christ follower, culture will always create a confrontation. When culture shifts, you've got to respond the right way. And this is where we are today. This is the crossroads of where we are right here, right now, February 2018, 21st century. Because in the church world today, there's two types of extreme. One is, is, is a dogmatic that basically just says, I'm right, you're wrong, period. It's just like, this is where we are. This is what we're doing. Everybody's going to hell except for us. And, and, and you know, it's like people that will stand up and they'll protest everything under the sun and, and they do in the name of religion and, and, and they, they, they want to just basically just go, look, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm on the right side of Scripture. You're on the wrong side of Scripture. I'm going to heaven. You're going to hell. You, you know the rhetoric. I, I was, I was uh, coming in late one night at the airport and uh, at Mitchell, and, and I'm, I'm walking out of my, the gate, and I'm walking up through TSA to exit to get to my car, and, uh, and there is a, there's a person that's just standing there. And I mean, it's 1130 at night. I'm tired. I'm, I'm, it's Friday night. I need to get home, get in bed. I've got services the next day, and, and I'm just really not in the mood. And I'm, I'm a pastor in the whole deal, but she proceeds to tell me how I'm a sinner, how horrible I am, how I'm going to hell. At that point in time, I felt like hell. And I'm just kind of walking through, just kind of doing my thing. And I'm just thinking, I wanted to stop and just go, who do you think you're helping? Really, do you actually think any of these business travelers who've been, who have been on the road all week long, 
just want to get home and see their families, do you really think you barking at them, telling them how they're going to go to hell, is going to stop any of them and go, you know what I am, would you, would you pray for me? Could I go to heaven? Why? Well, but, but, but here's the deal. So, so that, that's one stance. And somebody can say, well, but, but she's right. Well, yeah. But it's just because you're right doesn't mean you're right. Does that make sense? I'll explain that in a minute. Then the other side of it is, let's just change everything. Let's just drop everything. Let's don't talk about sin anymore. Let's don't talk about hell anymore. Everybody's going to heaven. Everybody gets a ribbon. Everybody gets a trophy. Does that sound familiar at all? Let's don't do anything. You know, let's don't melt any snowflakes. Let's just make sure God loves everybody. Let's just accept everything. God's the judge. We're not. So let's don't even get into any of that stuff. Let's just, there's certain parts of scripture we're not going to talk about. We know it's there. We may read it in our devotional, but we're not going to preach about it. We're not going to be known about it. It's just anybody can do whatever they want to do, whatever they think is right in their own eyes. But what's the answer? Because this is where we get stuck. Because if you're on the, if you're on the, the, the I'm right and you're wrong side of the scenario, it, it's, it's not real appealing. That lady yelling at me, and, and, and I'm a pastor, wasn't real appealing. I, I don't want to be associated with that. At the same time, this whole, like, just swampy, soupy, spongy, there's no standard of living and whatever, and we're just going to let the culture change us, I, I don't like that either. Because the problem is, is that I know too much. I know that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And I know there's a judgment coming. And I know that. And how can I, in my right mind, actually stand in front of people and lie to them? What? What do you do? I think the answer, and this is what we're going to unpack in this series, is, is trying to strike a balance between the truth that God is holy and we're not, and that without Jesus Christ, we're all going to die and go to hell. That there's only one way to the Father but through the Son. And at the same time, having grace to love people right where they are, right in the middle of their mess, Right in their sin, because that's what the Bible says God did for you and I. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I know it's a whole lot easier to preach than it is to live. But this is exactly what Jesus did. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, speaking of Christ, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Can I just tell you, it's much easier to be all about truth or all about grace, but when you try to manage the tension between truth and grace, it's sticky, it's complicated, it's messy. But the truth is what? It's God's standard. When we talk about truth, we're talking about God's standard. We're talking about his word. John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's God's word. Make sure you catch that. It's not your favorite preacher, even if it's me. And I, I know it's okay. We'll work through this later. Um, 
It's not what your favorite church says or what the Catholic church says, the Lutheran church says, the Assemblies of God church says, the non-denominational church says, this pastor says, this pastor wrote, this theologian says. It's not any of that. That's, can I just tell you, every pastor in America is giving commentary consistent with the word of God, should be, but commentary on what God's word says. The reality is, what does his word say? His word says that his word, God's word, the Bible that you hold in your hand, is truth. So we got to go back to that. And what does that mean? That means there's going to be times where we're going to talk about things that are uncomfortable. There are going to be times where there's going to be parts that are going to be convicting to us. It's going to convict us of sin. That's what, what John's gospel says of the Holy Spirit, that he will always point to Jesus and he will convict you and I of sin and lead us to righteousness. There's times where my experience and God's word are going to clash and I have to make a decision. Am I going to be led by my experience or am I going to be led by God's word? Charismatics and Pentecostals, well, this is what the Lord said to me. I don't care what he said to you. What does his word say? If your spiritual prophecy and your word is consistent with God's word, I'm fine with that. But if it's not, you had a bad burrito. I'm just telling you, somewhere in the mix. Because it's going to be consistent. And the other reality of, of this, too, is that in all of this, there are times where, where, where we just kind of want to go, well, maybe it's not quite as harsh. Maybe it's not quite it. No, this is what it says. We love everybody, and everybody's welcome, but we cannot change God's word or standard. That's beyond our pay grade. See, grace is God's favor to us. He favors you when you are not favorable. He dies for you when you are still sinning. You and I will never be able to earn it. It's what Paul says to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For God saved you by his grace, not your good works. When you believed... And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. For salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done so that none of us can boast about it. See, as Christ followers, we have a hard time with this truth and grace thing. Because here's the deal. Without truth, we're corrupt. But without grace, we're all condemned. Without truth, we become worldly. But without grace, we'll become judgmental. Without truth, excuse me, truth without grace is just mean. But grace without truth is meaningless. Truth and grace is the medicine that we need. Truth and grace is the medicine that our nation needs. Truth and grace is the medicine that our world needs. And it's what Jesus did. It's what he did. We don't need more churches in America. We need more places where truth and grace are found. Because grace invites us to be free. And truth ultimately will set us free. I want to end this. We're out of time. But I want to read this because I think this is a story in Scripture that encapsulates this striking the balance of truth and grace. John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees 
brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Interesting there. How did they know that? It's an interesting, just a side comment. How did they know what she was doing and where she was and what was going on? It's interesting how we know everybody else's junk and their sin, but we don't know our own. Just another thought. I know it's another message for another day. It's where my brain goes. Sorry. Verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? See, they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. But they kept demanding an answer. And he stood up again and said, all right, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Verse 8, then he stoops down and he begins to write in the dust again. We still don't know what he wrote. When we get to heaven, we'll know. I've got my own ideas. I think he's writing the names of all the mistresses of those men that were standing around and going, Sally, that's you. Martha. Because when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. I love this part of the story. Then Jesus stood up again and said to this woman, Where are your accusers? Because according to the law, the accusers had to be present to stone her. They had to bring a case. They had to present the case. It had to be conclusive. The judgment was made. Then the person was stoned. And what she did, the adultery, would have been a criminal offense, equal to stoning according to the, to the law of Moses. She's probably still wrapped in the bed sheet that they pulled her out of the bed in humiliated in front of everybody. And he asked, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Verse 11, no, Lord, she said. And then Jesus says, neither do I. So go and sin no more. He didn't say, it's okay that you're doing this. Just don't get caught the next time. It's okay that you're messing around, you're having sex outside of marriage. It's a new day. Moses is old, he's dead. I mean, what does he really know? I'm going to fulfill the law anyhow, so. He didn't try to change anything. Because Jesus will save himself. He didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. And the truth haters that just wanted judgment and judgment and judgment and judgment and judgment, they're gone. And Jesus doesn't go down this side of grace. He's just going, it's just okay. Just do what you want to do. You know, God understands. He's, he, he gets it. You're human. You're going to do stupid stuff. It's okay. Just, just keep doing that. It's, it's no big deal. Everybody's going to go to heaven. No. He makes sure that the requirement of the law is met. 
Her accusers are not there. There is no one there to accuse her. And he knows what she's done because he's the son of God. But he tells her, I want you to go from here. Go from the situation. Go from the circumstance. And just sin no more. The power to break sin is yours. Just quit doing this. But I don't accuse you. Why? Because you know what accuses us? It's not God. It should never be some pastor or church or Christian. It's your sin. The Bible says it's my sin that condemns me. Read John 3.17, Mr. Theologian. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Our sin condemns us. That's the reason why everybody in this room, everybody that was, that was baptized today, that have given their life to Christ, we don't need anybody to tell us how bad we are, how horrible we are, how desperate we are for God. We know that. That's why we're here. What we need is to know, not that there's, well, it's just okay, go do what you want to do. You can just get drunk and just have sex and just, you can be as, as unscrupulous as you want to be. No, because there's, there's a God in heaven who demands and has a standard that we walk that out. But there's grace that you and I could never in a million lifetimes earn that he gives to us. So we fall just like that woman. We've all been there where everything around us is convicting us of what we're doing. And Jesus steps in. Aaron, you know this is wrong. You know this is sin. But I paid the price for your sin on Calvary's cross. You're forgiven. Go and sin no more. That's what our world needs. It's not an absence of calling truth out or just some sloppy grace but it's the balance of knowing to not abdicating truth but to make sure that the grace is there to hold high God's truth but freely give God's grace let's pray Father I just thank you I thank you Lord for how timeless your word is It's a two-edged sword piercing us all the way through our flesh, through the bone, even to the marrow, to the very core of our being. Not to harm us, but to heal us. God, you've given us your standard not to destroy us, but to bless us. And it's counterintuitive because our flesh wants to go left when your word says, no, go right. And our mind wants to go left when your word says, no, go right. And that expanse that in a million lifetimes will never be good enough, you make up the difference because of the amazing grace that you purchased on the cross for us, Jesus. So help us as Christ followers to live in that tension of truth and grace. In Jesus' name I pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, you're here today, and you'd say, Aaron, I, I'm just like that woman that's caught in adultery. I'm far away from God. I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But what you're talking about 
My sin is condemning me. And I, I need the truth and the grace of God's word to, to pierce me with conviction. And that's what you're sensing right now. But I need the grace of Jesus Christ that you just read and that, that, that saves me from my sin, not of anything that I do. But I, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to surrender that to Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed. If that's you today, you want to do that today. I just want you to slip up your hand just high enough for me to see it. Thanks. Just up and back down. Thanks. Thanks. Just up and back down. Thanks. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to give you an opportunity. Anybody else? That's where you're at. Just up and back down. Say, man, that's me. Thank you. That's where I'm at. Thanks. Anybody else? Thanks. Anyone else? Say, that's where I'm at. You're, you're, I'm not your judge. I'm just, I'm one beggar telling another beggar where to find food, where to find the grace and the truth of God's word. Here's what I want us to do with every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to lead you, those of you that lifted your hand, that you said, man, you want to give your life to Christ today. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Praying the prayer is not some magical incantation that saves you, but if you believe the prayer that you're about to pray, that's the salvation. Not of you, but of Jesus. Romans chapter 9 and, and, uh, and 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's that simple. So I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. And believe the prayer that you're about to pray. I'm going to ask those of you in this room that have prayed this prayer before to lend your voice with those people that are praying this prayer for the very first time. Would you do that? Dear Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart, to come into my life, and to be my Lord and my Savior today. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And I believe that you are my salvation. Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for my sins, and rose from the grave, just like the Bible says. I give you my life today, and I ask you to come in and to take my sin away and to give me the grace and the hope and the love that I so desperately need right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I just pray for people that prayed that prayer for the very first time. Lord, that you would just let joy that's undescribable fill their heart. Let the peace of God that passes understanding, God, let it just so resonate with them and the life and the fullness that they're free, that they're free because you've set them free. Your truth of your word has set them free. Let them live and operate and move in that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.